So this October, my wife Erin and I will celebrate 12 years of marriage. And, you know, some of you have been married. How many of you in this room, you've been married longer than Aaron and I? You've been married more than 12 years, a bunch of you, right? And so, you know what I'm about, you know, you're going to understand what I'm about to say. Um, when you've spent that much time in that sort of close proximity with someone, it becomes difficult to be surprising to them. Have you learned that? Like, uh, you become kind of predictable, they get to know you. They get to understand your ways. Aaron, by this point, 12 years in, has heard all my stories. I got no more great stories for her. She's heard all my jokes. She knows all that. And, and when you spend that much life together, you, you know what each other's thinking in, in, in any given circumstance, right? You're in a certain situation. You know what your spouse is, is thinking. Uh, you can communicate to each other with just a glance, right? Just a look, and you know I'm in trouble. Like, just, just one little look. And Aaron knows often what I'm going to say in any situation. So like, um, we got to eat and we're having dinner together and I'll say something like this inevitably. This is really good, but you know what it could use? And she always knows. She always say, texture, texture. She's like, you always want texture in your food. I always want something that's a little crunchy or something. Something's a little different. I don't like it all to be mushy and all the exact same texture. So she knows. Or, or sometimes it's a little acidity. I like a little squeeze of lime or, or lemon or something on my food. And so she knows by now. And uh, one of the things that she knows is inevitably, inevitably going to happen at times is that we go to a place and we have a bad experience, whether it's bad service at a restaurant or, or just a, a bad experience with a salesperson or whatever, uh, or we go into uh, just whatever it is, and it's not good. She knows that at some point I'm going to turn to her and I'm going to say something like this. This is a leadership issue. <laughs> this is a leadership issue. That's what I always say. Like, so, like, it's not that person's fault. They weren't trained properly. Somebody's not holding them accountable. And I always push it up the ladder because to me, I always think this is a leadership failure. Somewhere along the way, a leader failed, and that's why we just had a bad experience. So I, I really believe in the importance of good leadership. And all of my graduate work was done in the area of leadership. So leadership is something I'm passionate about because leadership matters. And when leaders do well, everything, everybody benefits from good leadership. Leadership matters, and leadership makes a difference. Now, we're in week five of our seven-week series as we're going through our values of a, as a church. And if you've missed any of the previous four weeks, you can go online and listen to them. And I would encourage you to do so if this is your home church because it's an important series about what do we value most. And for the purpose of this series, we've defined the word values as deeply held beliefs that inform our behavior and shape culture, okay? So beliefs are deep, or values are deeply held beliefs that uh, inform our behavior and shape our culture. And we've put each of these values into little statements. And here's this morning's statement. Here's what I'm going to talk to you about this morning. We don't recruit volunteers at Trinity. We release leaders. We don't recruit volunteers. We release leaders. We want to empower you. If this is your church, if you're part of this church, we want to empower you to lead. But most importantly, we want to empower you to make a difference. Everybody wants to make a difference. And we want to give you that opportunity and help you move in that direction. Now, there's this uh, debate that goes on in leadership circles, which is around the question, are leaders born or are leaders made? You ever heard that? Are leaders born or are leaders made? And the answer is yes. Leaders are born and leaders are made because some people actually are born with a leadership gift. They just have a natural gift. And sometimes you can see it in your children when they're very young, right? All the other kids follow their example. Everybody gets in line behind them. So some people are born with a natural leadership gift and they're natural leaders. But 
even if you don't think that's you this morning, don't tune out because everyone is born with the opportunity to lead. Because I think one of the best definitions of leadership is leadership is influence. And everyone has the opportunity to influence someone else. Even if you feel, even if you feel like, who am I leading? You're always leading yourself, self-leadership. So everyone is born with the opportunity to lead. And everyone has the need to develop their leadership gift because everyone can make a difference. And we all want to make a difference. A couple years ago, David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, released a book, you've heard me mention it before, called The Road to Character. And in his introduction, he talked about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And he said the resume virtues are exactly what they sound like, things you would put on a resume. Here's the school I went to. Here's my education. Here's the things I'm good at. Here's my skill set. But the eulogy virtues are the things that people say about you at your funeral. You, you were kind. You were a good listener. You did something. You sacrificed something for them. And listen, last year, 2017, for my family and for the church family, was a year of terrible loss. But one of the things I learned in losing my father and my brother last year is this. At the end of your life, people will talk about the difference you made. They'll talk about the difference you made in their lives. They won't talk about all the things you were great at. You know, my dad was a great preacher, teacher, leader, visionary, communicator, all of those things. But in the last couple months of his life, nobody really was talking that much about that. They were telling me stories about his kindness and when he would give someone money to take their kids out for ice cream or take some kids to a baseball game. Or That's what people talk about at the end of your life. Did you make a difference? And here's what I want to suggest to you this morning as we get into this. If it's going to matter at the end of your life, it should matter right now in your life, right? If it's going to matter then, it better matter now. But we have this propensity to put so much of our energy into our resume virtues and just sort of figure our eulogy virtues will take care of themselves. They don't. At the end of the day, it's not the people who have the greatest resume virtues that make the biggest difference in the world. It's the people who have the eulogy virtues that make the difference in the world. We're going to look at a passage in Ephesians chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he's teaching them what it means to be a church together and how to make a difference and what their part is. Maybe you come here on Sunday mornings and you ask yourself, what's my part? What's my role? How do I make a difference? And that's what we want to talk about this morning. So let's look at this in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read to you from verses 11 to 16. It'll be on the screen behind me. Paul is talking about the gifts that Jesus gave as he ascended to heaven after he, after he lived, died, was buried, rose again. He ascends to heaven, and as he goes to heaven, he gives gifts to the church. And this is what he says in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He's talking about people who don't know truth from lies. In verse 15, he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ 
from whom the whole body, were the body, Christ is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul is using this metaphor of the body and the head and growth and maturity. And what we're going to see this morning, I just want to share with you four, four warnings this morning, and then we'll be done. And there's places on your notes to fill these in if you want. Four warnings, four things that I think when we think about what it means to make a difference, what it means to be a leader, what it means to have influence, what it means to serve in a local church or serve in our community, four things I think that we confuse. We, sometimes we confuse this for that. And I want to help us see the difference. Here's the first one. Sometimes I think we confuse showing up with growing up. We confuse showing up with growing up. We think because I show up on Sunday, I'm maturing in my faith. And Paul explicitly makes it clear here, it doesn't work that way. Showing up is not synonymous with growing up. Now, showing up is important because hopefully you're going to receive teaching and community and sense the Spirit's work in your life, and celebrate Jesus together. But showing up is not the same thing as growing up. And there are some people who come into the church, and they have a spectator mindset instead of a participant mindset. They're the spectator, they're not the participant. I think the reason why is because in much of our lives, that is the case. When we go to places, whether we go to a concert, to go see a stand-up comedian, to go to a sporting event, our role is we are the spectators, We sit and we watch and we're entertained. And sometimes I think we pull that mentality into the church with us and we say, I'm going to church on Sunday morning and I hope it's good this morning. And what you mean is, I hope the music's good. I hope pastor tells some good stories. I hope the snacks afterwards are good, right? Like, I hope it's good this morning. And we bring this sort of entertain me instead of what the scripture says, which is equip me. So I'm going to try and be interesting, believe me. But my primary focus in teaching to you is not to entertain you, but to equip you. Because you're not to be a spectator, you're to be a participant. And sometimes we have this mindset that, well, God gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. By the way, in the original language, pastor and teacher, there's no and in between them. So it's really pastor, teacher. God's given these gifts to the body. Why? so that we can be told how to live. And so they do the ministry. The professionals do the ministry. Pastor David is paid to do ministry, so he does the ministry, and we come and we receive the ministry. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. The pastors were given as a gift, verse 12, why? To equip the work, the saints, to equip you to make a difference, to equip you to do the work of the ministry. So here's the metaphor. I'm not the best athlete on the field, in this metaphor. In real life, I would be right up there. But, but in this metaphor, I'm not the best athlete in the world. I'm the coach in the dugout. I am the Phil Jackson to your Kobe Bryant, the Joe Torre to your Derek Jeter. I'm the coach in the dugout saying, here's a strategy. Here's what we're doing. Here's where we go. Here's how you can maybe play your position a little better. Do this, do that. But you're the ones that are doing the ministry. This is what, this is what Paul's saying. We're the ones that are called to do the ministry, all of us. You know, um, I'm coaching this year, actually, interestingly enough. I, this is my first really organized coaching uh, opportunity. I'm coaching Lilia's 10 and under soccer team. We're Team Lemon. Our jerseys are like highlight yellow. They're the easiest team to spot, but it's the ugliest jersey I've ever seen. And, uh, 
We, we had our first match yesterday, and um, we might have won 10 nothing. I don't know. We might have we won 10 nothing. And, and uh, so I, uh, I love soccer. Now, it's one of the big surprises of my adult life, because growing up, I hated soccer. I had the typical American attitude towards soccer. I don't get it. There's not enough scoring. There's too much running, and they tie. Like, that's the most un-American thing imaginable, ties. Somebody's got to win. But um, through a series of missions trips to Belfast, Northern Ireland, and England, I began to fall in love with soccer. And I chose a favorite team. And now soccer is my favorite sport. Liverpool is my favorite team in the English Premier League. And I watch soccer more than I watch any other sport now. And so almost every Saturday, in fact, Liverpool kicks off in 15 minutes, so we got to wrap this up. But... um, (laughs) Every Saturday or Sunday, I'm watching a Liverpool match usually. I watch so much soccer that I never played soccer. But when I went out there to run some practices for the kids, I'm the assistant coach. The coach was like, all right, let's, everybody line up. We're going to do this drill. And he explains the drill we're going to do. And he goes, and Coach Dave's going to join you. <laughs> and I was like, I was thinking, this should be easy. I watch a lot of soccer. I mean, I watch a lot of soccer. I know, I know what those players should be doing at all times, and I tell them what they should be doing at all times. So I watch all the soccer. But it turns out, turns out, watching soccer doesn't make you good at playing soccer. And uh, I've learned the hard way that those kids are a little better than I am at what they're trying to do. See, you have to get in the game. That's what I'm saying. If your faith is going to work, you've got to work your faith you got to do something with it. And sometimes we have this mentality like, I'm going to sit back and watch. You're not going to grow up just by showing up. You just, you can't do it. you got to do something with your faith. Every year for the last seven years, I've received CPR training from the Red Cross because I used to run a summer camp for teenagers. I don't do it anymore, thank God. But I used to do that. And uh, every year I would get CPR training. But you know what? You don't want me trying to do CPR on you. Because I don't think about it the rest of the year. I do one day of training. I do everything I have to do. I get my card, and now I'm certified so that we can run that camp. But if, you, but if one of you needs CPR today, you want one of our nurses in this uh, room to help you. Why? Because they're doing it all the time, or they're thinking about it all the time. It's, we've received the same basic training for that skill. I have the same basic knowledge that they have for that specific skill. Why do you want them and not me? Because I never do anything with it. And so what are we doing with our faith? If we're just learning about it and we're just filing away information, it's not actually going to come in handy when we need it the most. We have to do something with it. We have to be equipped. Now, equipped to do what kind of ministry? Maybe you're wondering. Well, that's a great question. There are specific areas of ministry that we want people to be in, but number one, we want people in this church to be serving in areas that align with two things, their gift and their passion their gift and their passion. We don't want people who are serving strictly out of need, although sometimes we have to do that, but ideally we want people serving out of gift and out of passion. Now what happens if they don't have both? What happens if somebody serves, they have the gift, but they don't have the passion? It's obvious. Everybody notices. Nobody wants to be served by you. But here's another one, and this is a big one in the church. A lot of people have a lot of passion, but they don't have the gift. Then what do we do? We all suffer because you got the passion, but you don't have the gift. So we need both. And when we can help, we can help you discover that and get you ministering. But every single person, regardless of what your gift and passion and talent is, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, God has given us all this same ministry, and it's called the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of telling people, God in Jesus Christ made a way for you to be right with God. 
and we all share that ministry. So don't confuse showing up with growing up. Number two, don't confuse passivity with humility. Don't confuse passivity with humility. You know, there are some people who say, I can't do anything. I can't lead. I can't help. And here's why. I don't have the personality. I don't have the history. I don't have the experience. I don't have the skill set. I don't have the charisma. I don't have the natural ability. I don't have that spiritual gift. I'm too young. I'm too old. And they guise it with humility, or they disguise it with humility. And C.S. Lewis makes it very clear to us in his famous saying about humility, that's not humility. Because C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself because, you know, self-pity is actually just an inverted uh, version of pride because pride is not necessarily thinking you're better than other people. Pride is just thinking about yourself all the time. Well, so is self-pity. You're thinking about yourself all the time. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I don't have it. So humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And there's some people who are sort of sitting on the sidelines because they've convinced themselves, I'm too humble to serve. I, I just, I can't put myself out there. I just want to be this humble little quiet servant. And it's passivity. And don't confuse the two. Biblical leadership and making a difference requires things like boldness and risk-taking and stepping out of our comfort zone. There's simply too much at stake for people to sit back and be passive and then call it humility. Do you notice that in the text that we read in verse 15, there's a phrase that is very familiar where Paul talks about speaking the truth in love. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Speaking the truth in love. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you heard it after somebody just said something very hurtful to you? (laughs) Hey, I know I just went up one side and down the other side of you, but I just want you to know I'm speaking the truth in love. So what does speaking the truth in love mean? Here's what we think it means. We tend to think in a spectrum. So let's say on this end of the spectrum is truth, and on that end of the spectrum is love, and we tend to think if I'm going to speak the truth in love, I got to get right in the middle of it. But the problem is if you're in the middle, then you're far away from truth, and you're far away from love. And sometimes we think, if I'm going to be more loving, I have to move away from being truthful. And if I'm going to be more truthful, I have to move away from loving. And Paul says here, no, it's, it's both. Because think about this. If, if you're just being loving without being truthful, you're an enabler. You're a coward. You're a liar. I mean, that's what it means to just be loving without truth. But if you're truthful without love, then you're a bully. You're self-righteous. You're lacking in empathy. You're lacking in understanding. But when love and truth come together, not 50-50, but 100% and 100%, when truth and love come together, this is what it makes you. It makes you a friend. It makes you a great friend. It makes you a friend who's willing to risk the relationship for the good of that person. You ever have to be that friend? Well, you gotta speak the truth even though you don't know if your friendship is gonna survive that conversation. That's a good friend. You need those sort of friends. I need those sort of friends. You're a good friend. You're a disciple maker. You're a leader. And so sometimes this whole idea of like, I can't say the truth. I can't serve. I can't step out. I I should just kind of hide in the shadows. That's not humility. That's passivity. And we need everybody. We need everybody leading and influencing and making a difference. Okay, number three. Don't confuse activity with productivity. Some of you at working places, you're like, amen. <laughs> this is like, this, I just described your work life. Don't confuse activity with productivity. Just because you're doing a lot of stuff, right, doesn't mean stuff's getting done. 
And uh, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that my wife, without my blessing, bought two hamsters <laughs> for our daughters. I do want to update you and say I have held one of them in my hands, and I didn't squeeze too tight either. <laughs> they're cute. They're cute. But these hamsters, you know what they do all day? You know what they do all day. They get on that little loop, that little circle, and they run like they're going somewhere. And I mean, they are killing it. They're crushing it. I mean, like, they are really, really running super fast, and that thing is spinning. I'm just sitting there watching them like, this is, a, this is exactly what I'm talking about right now. Activity without productivity. Working hard without getting anywhere. And the truth is, is that, you know, when we talk about this idea of activity without or versus productivity, when you look at what Paul says here, it's very clear that he's saying the point of everything that we do as a church is for people to grow up, for people to mature, for people to step into what God has for them and to make a difference. So this idea of leadership and influence is not just about increased activity. We're not just trying to fill your calendar as a church, say, here's a lot of stuff for you to do. Here's a lot of things for you to fill your calendar with. We're not trying to fill your calendar. We're trying to fill your life with meaning and with a way to serve. So the goal of everything we're talking about this morning is not to be busy. We're not trying to make you busy. The goal is maturity. The goal is productivity. The goal is being not just productive, but reproductive. You know, in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus gives his disciples what is called the Great Commission. Jesus says to them, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, teach them, baptize them, so on and so forth. Do you know that in that, in, that, in that verse, when you look closely at the original Greek, there's only one verb in that verse that's in the imperative form. There's only one verse that's actually a command, and it's not the word go. It's the word make. So here's the way it really should be translated. As you go, make disciples. Or in your going, and by that he means in your living, in your everyday life, in your going to work, in your doing yard work, in your being in your home, in every area of your life, as you go, make disciples. And our mission statement here as a church is that we exist to make disciples for the glory of our God and for the good of our community. Well, what does it mean to make disciples? Simply you helping your friends find and follow Jesus. Helping your friends find and follow Jesus. And you might think, oh yes, well, that's why we have a church. So we have great activities to bring our friends to, and you're certainly more than welcome to bring your friends to. But that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. Oh, let's run more events so that we can reach more people. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, therefore, sit in a building and invite everybody to become disciples, did he? He said, therefore, as you go, in your going, in your everyday life, make disciples. I think sometimes we have this mentality like if we could just get everybody in clay into a church so that they could hear the gospel, that's the way God wants to reach this community. And I would say that is, that's not the way God wants to reach this community. You know how God wants to reach clay and Salina and Van Buren and wherever you live? Through you, through your home, through your kitchen, through your dining room table, through your conversations outside with your neighbors. Sometimes we think, no, if we could just get somebody who had a gift of evangelism to preach every Sunday. Well, let, let, me, let me give you an illustration of, of Jesus' model was for people to make disciples who make disciples, reproductive, right? Productivity, not just activity. Well, let's uh, throw this first slide up for us, Ed. Imagine that we have this super evangelist, and the super evangelist preaches every day, and every day a 1,000 people put their trust in Jesus. Pretty darn good, right? Like, who would sign up for that? 
So at the end of year one, what do you have? 365,000 people who have made a decision to follow Jesus. But that's not, that wasn't the model Jesus left us with. He left us with the faithful discipler model. What's the faithful, faithful discipler model is, this year I'm going to find five people and I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to pour my life into them. I'm going to share my life with them. I'm going to share my space with them. I'm going to inconvenience myself to make disciples. And so in year one, I'm going to make five disciples who in year two are going to go and make their own disciples. Now leave this screen up for a second. Let me talk you through years one, two, and three. So year one, uh, faithful disciple is off to a bad start. This is a pretty much a landslide, right? Year two, it doesn't get any better. Because in year two, the super evangelist reaches 730,000 people now with the gospel. And these six men or women have made five disciples each. So what's six times five? 30. So now we have 30. So you have 730,000 versus 30. Still not very good. Year three, year three, the super evangelist has now reached over a million people, over a million people with the gospel. And 30 times five is 150. So now it's a million versus 150. Let's skip to year five. Here's year five. Still a complete blowout. Super evangelist, 1,825,000 people. Year five, 3,750 people. Now pause for a second. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth. 2,000 years. So Jesus, knowing the amount of time, knowing all the years he's gonna have, sets up this model for what's gonna happen over the course of 2,000 years to reach people. Now let's skip to year 10. Look what happens by year 10. By year 10, super evangelist has reached 3,650,000 people, but the faithful disciples have reached nearly 12 million people. So you think, I can't make a difference. I don't teach. I don't preach. I don't have an audience. I don't have a radio show. I don't have to, what can I do? You know what you can do? You can do what Jesus called you to do. You can be productive and reproductive. You can make disciples who make disciples. And if you can find five people this year to pour your life into and say, I'm just going to love them. I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to check in with them. I'm going to be the best big brother or the best big sister that that person has ever had. And I'm going to love them to Jesus, five people. And then once they experience it, once you've experienced something wonderful, what do you want to do? You want everybody else to experience. They're going to go and do the same. And this is the way that the church grows. This is the way that the kingdom grows. So what does this mean? As a church leadership team, we're looking at everything that we do at Trinity, and we're not asking questions like this. Do people show up? Do people like it? Have we always done it this way? We're not asking those questions. Here's the only question that we're asking. This is the only question that matters. Is it helping us make disciples? Is that program, is that ministry, is that effort, is that exertion of energy, time, and resources, is it helping us make disciples? Because at the end of the day, if it's not helping us make disciples, we either need to figure out how it can or we need to stop doing it. Because we have one mission, which is to make disciples. We don't exist to offer programs, have ministries, or even have services. We exist to make disciples. If there was ever persecution in our country, and like many, many churches around the world can't meet like this, if we ever got to that point, um, would, we just, would we just cease to exist? No, we shouldn't, because it's not about the service. It's about people faithfully making disciples wherever they are. Okay, last point, and then we'll finish, is this. Don't confuse your calling with your identity. This is a big one. Don't confuse your calling, what you're called to do, what you're equipped to do, 
what you're gifted to do, what you're passionate to do. Now, I'm not just talking about stuff that you do inside the church walls. I'm talking about some of you are gifted carpenters, gifted in the medical field, gifted writers, gifted educators, gifted in law enforcement, gifted in all sorts of things. That's part of your calling, okay? But don't confuse your calling with your identity. And I think one of the things that makes us the most unhappy in life is when we get this wrong, when we confuse our calling with our identity. In this passage, in verse 15, uh, Paul talks about growing up into him who is the head, into Christ. He's saying, if we're the body, Christ is the head. And so no matter what part in the body you play, you share the same identity with each other. You're the same identity as the head that is Christ. Let me explain it this way. When you're out and about and you see somebody from a distance and you think you know them, and you, you, you think you know them, you can't see their face yet, but you think you know them because you recognize their build and you recognize the way they walk, right? Everybody's kind of got a way that, that they walk. And you're kind of looking at them like, I think that's so-and-so. And you're watching them because you're watching how they're walking and how they're built. And as they get closer to you, what are you looking for? Their face. You don't look closer at their walk all the way until they're in front of you. Like, is that you? Is that you? Right? Eventually, you lift your eyes and you look right in their face because when you look at their face, that's how you know who, that's how you know who they are. And who are you? Well, according to the New Testament, the most used phrase for followers of Jesus is this. You are in Christ. You're in Christ. We talk a lot about Jesus being in us, which actually is not true. The Holy Spirit is within us. But more true is this. You're in Christ. You're, you're in him. You are united to him. This is the metaphor of the body, that every part of the body has a unique calling, but we have one head, we have one identity, and we share that identity that we're in Christ. And no matter what happens to our callings, to our gifts, whether we lose opportunities, whether we lose skills, whether we lose the physical ability to do something that we used to be able to do, it's okay because our calling is not our identity. What you do is not equal to who you are. And when you try to make what you do your identity, then your identity is always at stake every time you mess up, every time someone comes along that's better than you at it, right? Every time you're criticized for something, if you struggle with criticism, we all struggle with criticism. Aristotle says, if you want to avoid criticism, it's easy. Say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. That's the way to avoid criticism. But if you're going to lead, if you're going to make a difference, you're going to get criticized. You just are. And it's okay. You know why? Because your calling is not your identity. You can get criticized for all the things that you do, but ultimately you and I are in Christ. He united himself to us through his work on the cross, through his death. When he dies, if we place our faith in him, we're in him on that cross. In other words, our sin dies with him. And then when he raised, we were with him, raised to new life. In fact, in two weeks, we're going to have a water baptism Sunday right up here. We're going to baptize teenagers and children and adults, and you can sign up by next Sunday to be water baptized if you've never been water baptized. And this is a way of publicly saying, I... Public, I want to go public with my faith and say that I'm in Christ. I identify with Christ. He is my identity. You are not united to your gift. You're not united to your call. You're not united to your abilities. You're not united to a position. You are united to Christ, and your identity is secure in him. Listen, your calling is important. We need you to live out your calling. The kingdom needs you to live out your calling, but it can never take the place of your identity. Because your identity is in Christ, and it's secure. And that's how we make a difference, by resting in Christ 
and stepping out in boldness and faith who he's called us to be. Let's pray together.